The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, it is a great pleasure and honor to welcome Jan Weber. Jan grew up in south-central Wisconsin. She now lives in Brooklyn. She is a filmmaker, a producer, director, and writer. She began her production career in New York at ABC, NBC, and in syndicated TV. She moved on to feature films as co-producer and writer of several action movies. She's had a career spanning some 35 years, but from Brooklyn, she has gone back to her roots in the rural heartland to tell the story of farmers and food and what is happening to the landscape. Jan, welcome. Thank you very much. I first became familiar with your work with a film called As We Sow, and it is a film about hog farming, essentially, and what's happened in Iowa to hog prices, to hog farmers, and the rural landscape. What led you to move from this sexy career in New York City back to the Midwest and look at hog farmers? Well, I had no idea that hog farmers were going to be my subject. And, in fact, with all of my producing experience through that long career, I had never done any documentaries. So this was my very first foray into documenting, and that's essentially what I was doing, documenting. I had no idea what it was going to end up being. I thought I might archive some of this footage at the University of Wisconsin, for example. I just didn't have a final thing in mind until after I got back and looked at this mound of footage and found the story within it. I had no idea about any of these topics, to be honest with you. So the story has it that you were reading an article in the New York Times about rural America And you said to your husband, someone should document this. And he looked at you and said, you should. And that's how it started. And that was in 2001. That was in 2001. And, you know, again, I had to go out and buy all of the equipment and learn it and do all of that and then hop on a plane and go out to the Midwest. And though I grew up in Wisconsin, I chose Iowa because I just thought it was emblematic of what was happening in farming, and I was so right, but I didn't realize that it was going to unfold the way it did. Essentially, I I started talking to farmers, and I learned everything from them, and I traveled the countryside and saw what was going on there. I mean, I had been gone for some 30 years, Mm -hmm. and I came back, and I saw these sleek, shiny buildings and no animals. Mm-hmm. And I saw lots and lots and lots of corn, and I had grown up in a different kind of rural environment, really more southwest Wisconsin, which is very hilly, and there's a lot of contour farming and that kind of thing. And this was just oceans of corn, 
oceans of soybeans, which I also did not grow up with. Mm-hmm. So the changes were, it was more the absence of things. Yes. You know, the absence of vital towns, the absence of farmhouses that were actually full of people, mm-hmm. and replaced by no animals outdoors, and these, what I later learned to be, confinement operations. Well, you have very few pieces of data built into the film. You know, there are a couple of frames where you have some historical information, such as between 1950 and 2002, out of every three U.S. farmers left farming. You know, so you've got these staggering statistics, but mostly what you do is you tell the story of what happened through the farmer's voice. And I just want to recommend that our listeners go online, Google As We Sow. You can listen to it in three parts on YouTube. And every part, I promise you, will hold you mesmerized and feeling very much outraged. If you, if you have a heart at all, be feeling very much outraged about what has happened, not only to humanity, but to our rural communities and the price that we pay for that. So you interviewed farmers. I'm assuming that you had some striking moments with them. What were some of the stories that really hit you? Well, there were so many stories. But I think one of the most poignant stories was the family that it's really only stated at the end, Mm -hmm. that they actually had to move away. Mm -hmm. And the family was split up for a period of a year while they tried to figure out what to do with their property, which was just a very few feet away from a huge confinement operation. So they lost everything, and Mm -hmm. they were sick. Right, which is why they moved. Yeah, that's why they had to move, because of their young son and, and their dog. Yeah. Because of the gases that were emanating from that hog confinement, and there was nothing they could do. And also, the others were uh, Dwight, who is the one who basically opens the film. He and his wife are now dear friends of mine. And they were completely consumed with trying to fight off a confinement operation. And they were conventional farmers. It wasn't as if they were, I mean, they had been farmers for years and years and years and came from a long line of farmers but this relatively new kind of technology, which is confinement operations, these CAFOs, really destroyed their neighborhood. They were finally able to force, it took them 10 years, force a lot of changes on that particular place. But as Beth said to me, we got everything we wanted except rid of them. Yeah. So how did that change occur? Did that become clear to you? Well, one of the people is Jim Brown, who is now an environmentalist living in Illinois, which is really funny. But he and his dad, and he says it, he's the one that walks through an empty CAFO. They started the technology. They were one of the very, very first to put in these confinement operations for pigs. That is where the manure is liquefied, and it has all of these the elements of confinement. I, I guess we could go into the details of that, but the, the idea was it's a technology-based, and it's what they teach in the land-grant schools. That's right. You know, this, is, this was meant to be the most forward-looking, technology-based 
kind of farming. Mm-hmm. And that's what colleges like, you know, Iowa State set their science to. Mm-hmm. How do we produce, well, protein, as they often refer to it, right. in huge volumes and keep it really cheap? Mm-hmm. And that's the other white meat. And also what's mentioned in the film is that there's this expectation in the market that every piece of meat be the same. You right. know, if you're buying a steak it's gonna, and of a certain cut, it's going to be this, every single package of meat that you pick up in the store is going to be the same. And unfortunately, some of the pieces of information that I got from As We Sow is that there are just as many hogs today as there were back then. What I've learned from the Missouri Rural Crisis Center is that the meat is no cheaper using this quote-unquote efficient method. And we've got a lot of costs that are not accounted for that don't come up at the cash register. Right. Well, they can externalize all of the costs of any kind of environmental degradation. But the consistency of the animal, that is, they're all the same size, like a pair of shoes, all the same size. Right. Is really done not for the consumer as much as it is done for the processor. Mm. That's so you can... It goes back to the days where (laughs) the unions were busted in the meat processing industry. Right. I mean, when I was growing up in Wisconsin, we were near the Iowa border, and for those guys who didn't want to go on to college, they could make a respectable and was considered a, a way of supporting your family and making a very decent living at the slaughterhouse, at the processor, at uh, Dubuque Pack. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't have highly skilled people making union wages and produce cheap meat. Right. So you start with the animal itself, and you, you perfect the genetics that are going to make them all be the same so that you can hire them. You don't need the skilled people. You don't want to pay them. So you can hire a worker who can make one cut on a line, and, and that line moves fast. You don't need any skill. So it's part of the food system. It's it's the whole system that's really in service of producing lots of a very, very cheap product. Mm -hmm. One of the farmers that you interviewed says something that I think is so wise and insightful. He says, we're really being mined. So the corporations come in, they take the resources without any thought about how a community and how a family might be affected, but this idea of being mined, was it struck me. Well, I, it, it struck me too, and, I, and it continues to be so, except that we're, we're sort of running out of room. You know, how much more can you do? Mm-hmm. But that's why they're moving. I mean, why are they raising cows in places like Idaho? Right. I mean, why are there these huge feedlots or these huge farms, if you want to call them farms, located in places that aren't even suited? Exactly. It's wherever they can get it done, it will get done. And that's all in the name of efficiency. How did you decide on the title, As We Sow? It's a play on or a slight adaptation of the title of a book written by a rural sociologist named Walter Goldschmidt. And he did the kind of seminal work on 
industrialized farming and the effects on people and community, which was called As You Sow. And I've, with a great deal of thought, actually changed it to As We Sow because I feel that we are all, in many ways, part of this food system and, and in our way, complicit. Mm-hmm. So it's what we are doing or what we permit to be done that makes a difference on the final outcome. But Walter Goldschmidt, he wrote this book in the 1940s, and it remains one of the books on, as I said, the effects of, of industrialized farming. In his, He was located in the Central Valley of California, and he was commissioned to do this work as a sociologist because they were trying to figure out who should get the water. <laughs> mm. And it had, you know, that was the basis of it. Should the farms be kept, I think it was 140 acres, and dispersed amongst lots of small farmers, or should things be consolidated and the water going to large industrialized farming? And so the government hired him and said, go out and find out, you know, let's, we've, we've looked at this from an economic standpoint, we've looked at it this way and that way. How would it affect communities? And that's what his book was about. And he made some startling discoveries. And that was that the effect on community was astounding. Those little towns that were located in the middle of a large industrialized situation that had help that was not connected to the community suffered greatly. Those which were family-oriented, smaller operations, farms, where the town was the center of community life and so on, did very well. And he had various markers for what was good and what was bad, but the end result was a study that showed that industrialized farming had tremendously negative effects on small communities and on the people who work within them. So he just did his job and... Just as it was published, it was immediately suppressed by agribusiness. And so it didn't see the light of day until the 1960s when it was brought out as an example for Earth Day and republished. And so it was suppressed all that time. That's how damaging or dangerous it seemed to be to large-scale industrial ag That's a fascinating story, Jan. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jan Weber. She is a producer, director, videographer. She has produced a documentary short called As We Sow about hog farming in the Midwest. She's also presently working on a film that I want to talk about because 10 years later and hundreds of hours worth of footage that you're going to turn into a a new one-hour documentary called Farmlandia. Are you done taping now? No, I, you know, at some point I'm going to have to say I'm done, you know. Right. I have to say because I really love talking to farmers. <laughs> so it's hard to stop. I know what you mean. <laughs> so, so, and I've always looked at things, as you said, I, it was always in the voice. I don't have a narrator telling people what to think or do. I like to just have the farmers tell their stories in their own voices. And so I set out to find a home for the footage that I've been going back to get over the past 10 years after As We Sow. 
and also new footage, which I shot this late summer, early fall in a 7,000-mile cross-country car drive, (laughs) which all of that will be incorporated into a film that I'm calling Farmlandia. And it's looking at food systems, essentially, but again, from the point of view of farmers and at the point of where they make choices about how they're going to farm and what they're going to do, I'm very interested in what makes people choose Mm -hmm. to do things a certain way. You know, what are the forces that are in play that either force them to do it a certain way or make them decide to do it a different way? And that's really what this is about. So I'm I'm looking at farmers who have, most of, of whom have been squeezed out of the large-scale farm food construction, right. that is, of big ag and big distribution and all of that kind of thing, but have been able to build a kind of food system within their realm, and they're successful at it. And so I've visited lots of different farms. Now, how do you find the farms that you visit? Well, I've built a pretty big network now. And so I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of talking. When I began this project, people wrote to me and said, I think I know somebody who would be great for this. So I've I've really done it that way. But a lot of it has been through, well, I mean, people like you (laughs) and people who I've I've known for a long time and over the course of time have built a strong relationship with. And, you know, a number of them are actually from Missouri. Now, <laughs> when you arrive on a farm, do you have the same set of questions that you ask all the farmers just to start the conversation? Or how does that work? I know you're interested in what are the forces that influence choice. And I think, by the way... I think that's a brilliant question because then we can start looking at policy and especially as we we look at the farm bill every five years, that's really when we need that data. So do you come with a list of questions? Well, when I did As We Sow, my major question was, what changes have you seen? Mm -hmm. Because that's what I wanted to know. Right. Now the question is, why do you do it this way? Yeah. And are you making it? You know, what are the struggles? And really, with that lead question, that's really basically the only question you need to ask. Because people are not often asked that. Yeah. They really aren't. I mean, most of us in our careers aren't asked that. So why this? Right. So with all of the farmers that you met, are some of the struggles the same or consistent throughout? Well, I would say that there are certain consistent things that I found. One of them is in answer to why farm is that that people have a connection, a generational connection to farming. Mm-hmm. I didn't meet very many people. In fact, I, I don't know if I met anyone who did not have some connection to farming through their family line. And that goes for Caribbean people in urban gardens whose families always farmed in Jamaica. (laughs) Right. To a young couple in in Montrose, Colorado, whose families have always 
been ranchers, so they raise cattle. So there is a, I don't know that there has to be, and I know that there are a lot of young people who are entering the field, but it, it's somehow, it's, I always say it, they're sort of genetically hardwired for it. Mm-hmm, I agree. And tell me something, what were some of the consistencies among the struggles? Finding a market, finding a market for their goods, distribution and selling. Yeah. You know, because because the other thing is that not every farmer is a good farmer's market person, you know. Right. There's a whole bunch of farmers in the middle who are big in comparison. I mean, farmer's markets, I'm, I love them and love them and support them and all of that, but that is not the only food system and cannot be. I mean, it's the there's there's a reason why there are commodity farmers. Right. And it is because they supply in quantity. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to do what happened to pigs. It doesn't mean that you have to only think in terms of quantity because there are certainly medium-sized farms that don't lose any of the quality and don't screw up their land and and leave the world a better place for what they do. But their considerations are different. But basically, they want to be able to grow things, sell things, and make a decent living. It seems like a pretty reasonable request. I, I, you know, I mean, uh, farmers like to... uh, like to send their kids to college. Sure. You know. Yeah, they like to have health care. They like to have health care and occasionally even take a vacation. Right. Imagine that. <laughs> so so it's not, you know, people are not looking to be millionaires. Sure. But but the consistent thing is, you know, a love of the love of what they do. Right. I hear you. I find the same thing in speaking to farmers and Our challenge as eaters and citizens is to make it so that we can all live cooperatively and realize the same pursuit of happiness, I suppose. Well, I think it is the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I I think that, though, again, I love the efforts of, of getting new people into farming, and I think that has to be done and it must be done because otherwise who will, who will do it? You still don't want to bring in a bunch of people who are just going to be dirt farmers or subsistence farmers. Right. You want them to have a life. Right. With Farmlandia, as you put the pieces together, are you finding some themes that you want your audience to take home, or is that still in development? Well, it's still in development. What I would like, I guess what I'd like to do is to I, it's such an old 60s term, but raise consciousness. I don't know if I have a call to action or not, but I do, I do believe that we don't know enough. I mean, for example, the question now is, you know, is, is where does our food come from? And people are really asking that question. And I have to be careful not to think that, you know, New York City is the world. <laughs> we tend to be a little provincial and closed. We think, you know, what's going on here is what's happening everywhere, and clearly that isn't the case. But, yes, people should know where their food comes from, but they should also know how it gets to them. Right. And what it takes. You know, why, for example, the question is always, you know, why is why is 
this organic tomato more expensive? Mm-hmm. Or why is it so darn expensive? You know, well, there are reasons. You know, there are reasons why it's expensive. But there are also ways of looking at expense and, and understanding that it, we're, we pay a high price for cheap food. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. But it's more subtle. So I, I, I'm looking at food systems large and small. I mean, I went to, I went to a place in northern Indiana where there were 30,000 cows in one spot. Mm-hmm. And I'm not telling anyone how to think. But I would like to, them to see what the consequences are of 30,000 cows in one spot. Right. You know. Yeah. And then I think, too, with regard to consumers making choice, what concerns me is that our choices are becoming fewer and fewer. So while we might say, I don't want that 30,000 cow operation, all of a sudden I realize I wake up one morning and I think I only have a choice to buy milk from that kind of operation. The other no longer exists. It's all about choice. You're so right. I mean, people who, you know, I just followed some people at the Farmer's March and so on here in New York. One was the the people who are suing Monsanto to protect the organic farmers. Right. And all they're asking for is that they can make the choice to be the farmers who they are and that people understand and can choose where their food comes from right? and what's in their food. And and you're right, the, the whole large ag, it's all about profits and growing their market and their support from their their um, shareholders, and the more it's consolidated and the more it moves in that direction, the less choice we have. I mean, that's it. Well, Jan- and the less choice the farmers have. Exactly. exactly. You know, I, I spoke to a farmer, actually you know him, Richard Oswald, who is probably one of my favorite farmers in the whole world. Mm-hmm. He's a conventional grain farmer, but he's non-GMO. Well, his seed man called him and said, I'm sorry, I don't have anything but GMO. Wow. Talk yeah. about the loss of choice. Jen, we're going to have to end. I knew that 30 minutes would not be enough for us, so I think as your film comes to fruition and we and when it sits out, I would really like to have you back to talk more about it. But for now, I want everyone to know that we can all contribute to Jan's efforts online. And there's a wonderful website. If you go to www.farmlandia.us, that's farmlandia, farmlandia.us, you can learn more about Jan. You can learn more about the documentary. And you have a wonderful blog. There is, this is an evolution, and we, we learn right along with you. I want to thank you, Jan, for being with me today. Jan is a filmmaker. We've been talking about As You Sow, her first short documentary, and now her longer documentary called Farmlandia. We want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hamelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. And, Jan, thank you so much for telling the story. Well, thank you for having me. 